Well, it's great to see all of your happy faces this morning as we venture into the holiday season. Um, today I wanted to take a break <clears throat> from 1 Samuel, and I'd like to go into one of my <clears throat> favorite all-time hymns, uh, that, I'm sorry, Psalms, and that would be Psalm 73. Turn your Bibles, if you would, please, this morning to Psalm 73. In my opinion, it's the probably one of the most epic psalms in the entire psalms family, which had a huge impact on my own life and ministry and just the whole walk <clears throat> that probably many of us have experienced as well, if you're familiar with this psalm. I will be reading through the entire psalm, and then we'll move from there. Psalm 73, I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there is no pains in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than their heart could wish. They scoff and they speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. <clears throat> Therefore, his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there more knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly, who are always at ease. They increase in riches. And surely I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I understood their end. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I have in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. 
but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful to be here this morning. To be connected and affirmed with your body. Lord, we're thankful that we have these privileges and honors, Lord, to be able to come into the house of God and be able to listen to the word of God preached, Lord, and to gather with the saints. Lord, we are beyond grateful, Lord. Let us never take it for granted of these wonderful privileges that we have today because tomorrow they could be ripped from us. Lord, grant us a great appreciation for your word. And let not your ministers ever, Lord, stray from your word and compromise and find ourselves trying to make everything palatable and everything easy and everything comfortable and everything fun. But Lord, we would preach your word as it is written in your word. That we would be men of honesty and integrity. Lord, and our chief aim is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Bless your congregation today. Open their hearts that they may hear your truth. Not spoken by a sinful man, but by the spirit of God. Grant us all this privilege today that we would heed your word, Lord, that we wouldn't be ice cold, that we wouldn't be just here going through the motions, Lord, as some empty, vain ritual. But we're here truly because we care about you and we care about your word and we care about our lives of holiness, Lord, that we could learn from your word and we could walk in a way that would be pleasing in your sight. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I titled this sermon this morning with just one word. And that word is the word nevertheless. Nevertheless. Because this word really describes the Christian life. I took this word from Psalm 22. Uh, in, in verse 22, and Asaph says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. And these words followed his admission when he realized and was awakened to the truth about himself and about God. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. And then he says, nevertheless, I was continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. This is truly a monumental psalm, almost written as a personal, personal testimony or biography of a man who nearly lost everything because of his dismay in what seemed that the wicked ungodly world is more favored than those who are God's people. Judging the apparent tragedy of his own life compared to others who do not know God. This man 
was a man who was named Asaph. We must ask ourselves the question, who was this man, Asaph? Asaph was the worship leader of King David in all of Israel. Psalm 50 and 78 and 83 are attributed to him, and he was in latter times celebrated as a seer as well as a musical composer. Asaph also left behind him a legacy. The sons of Asaph were likely a guild of skilled poets and singers modeling themselves musically after Asaph, their master. Asaph was around in some of Israel's most glorious and tragic days. He was there when King David, when the Ark of the Covenant was brought to Jerusalem in about 1000 to 995 B.C., and apparently David had brought Asaph, quite talented, and put him in charge of the music before the Ark of the Covenant. Which scripture shows that he kept that position until the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem almost 40 years later. Imagine that. Being in this position operating in this manner for 40 years in the kingdom of David. At that time, the worship services of the tent of meeting and the tabernacle were consolidated in the temple, and the Ark of the Covenant was reinstalled in its rightful place in the Holy of Holies next to the holy place. Asaph served in Jerusalem for all of David's reign. And no doubt set music, many of the psalms that God gave to David. He was in Jerusalem when God gave David the great promise that David would have a son who would be basically this idea of Messiah and reign forever. He saw David, he saw the death of David, the ascension of Solomon, and the building of the temple. He thought he was standing on the verge and precipice of Israel's millennium. Just get this today, think through this. This is the idea that is going on in Asaph's mind when he's seeing these things take place. He's seeing these things as he's ministering and serving under King David. He's watching these establishments coming together. He's watching things unfold before his very eyes. But he was a bit misunderstood in the reality of what the kingdom ultimately would be inaugurated by, and that would be King Jesus himself. He was there in Israel's golden age, the age in which the apparent blessings of the Most High would rest upon the nation and the kingdom would now be completed. But the exact opposite happened. After Solomon's death, Asaph, now a very old man, saw David's kingdom not established, but torn in two. Instead of seeing what he thought would be the fulfillment and establishment of the kingdom of God, he witnessed unparalleled destruction and judgment. Imagine that. Here you're expecting one thing. You're expecting the establishment of the kingdom. Your heart's looking forward to this, seeing the finality of what God was going to pour out on his kingdom, and yet being totally devastated by the reality that instead of this blessing happened, judgment took place instead, and the kingdom was torn in two. 
gross tyranny and self-absorbed pleasure-seeking kings were instituted into power until the final judgment came with the absolute destruction of the temple. With many, this is where it gets tough, with many of Asaph's family perishing along with it. And it was about this time when Asaph penned Psalm 73. So you get the full picture and backstory of where he was when this psalm was penned. Imagine coming out of this. I mean, it's one thing to read a psalm and read the word of God and not quietly understand what the, even though it was inspired by the spirit of God, we got to understand the humanity here as well. We have to understand what Asap was going through, what he just experienced. Could you imagine what he was going through? He expected one thing, but he got the other, and he got judgment, and he got destruction, but now that he even lost some of his family members in the destruction. So he was left devastated. If there was ever a man who had an excuse... For being disillusioned, Asap was that man. And I believe that this particular tragedy was the trigger to Asap's psalm. The psalm says Asap was troubled by two matters. These are the two matters I want to discuss this morning. The first one is the prosperity of the godless. And number two, the pain of the godly. And I added a third point here as well. And that is our present and future help. The prosperity of the ungodly. His opening words to the psalm verify and testify that his view of God had been corrected. When he put this psalm together, he'd already experienced the pain and the damage and the repentance towards God when he wrote this psalm. He wasn't writing this as he was going through it. He wrote this after and when everything came back together for him, as you will read. But this reality is, is that when he penned the psalm, he already had the entire story together. In his opening words to the psalm, he verifies and testifies as his view of God had been corrected. And he starts this psalm by saying, truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. Truly, or more correctly translated, would be only. Only God is good to Israel. He is only good. Asaph, stricken to the heart about his sin of self Deception reacts to this reality that God is truly only good to his people. He knew God was good, and circumstances in one life, as terrible as they may seem, does not change reality. And his skepticism caused serious doubts about his absolute confidence in the one true God. He turned into a skeptic when he started seeing the devastation of the things that he thought were supposed to be a fulfillment. And this was a tragedy. But like many of us, we get rejected, mistreated, slandered. We have the ones we love walk out on us. 
Some of us are constantly under financial stress. Some are sick, struggling with horrid depression and anxiety. Your life seems to be nothing more than one calamity after another. And if we're not careful, soon we'll start to think like the world. We begin to hold God in contempt. We question his providence. We begin to veer away from the truth. We wonder how on earth can God treat me like this? The world doesn't seem to have these problems. Or worse yet, we begin to look to the world for our comfort. Our lives begin to change to such an extent you find yourself in ASAP's shoes saying this. I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But as for me, he goes on to say, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Another translation says, I nearly went astray. Or I was almost gone. I was almost a goner. His skepticism and his reaction to this tragedy changed him from thinking rightly towards God to thinking now as a worldly person. And if we're not careful in our own lives, being believers... And when tragedy strikes or things don't go the way that you think they should have gone and you put your whole rest and strength and confidence in this reality that things are supposed to turn out this way and then they don't. Even things that you read in the word of God, you may be wrong. I'm not saying God's word is ever wrong, but how we interpret things could be wrong. And when you're hit with disasters and you're hit with sickness or you're hit with poverty or someone close to you dies or walks out of your life for no apparent reason, you're betrayed, you're rejected, you're left alone and now you're trying to navigate through this pain, there's a lot of temptation to get your nurturing from the world. Because these types of situations, as traumatic as they could be, can change us very quickly if we're not careful. You can find yourself one moment worshiping God because everything's going great in your life. Everything's good. You love prayer. You love the Word of God. You love God's people. And then a tragedy strikes. Now you want nothing to do with God's people. The word of God doesn't look promising anymore. Your prayer life is completely gone to shambles. And it's a dangerous place to be because what happens after that? You find yourself going to the world. What other people's view and think about you. You start going to social media and you try to gather all of the acceptance you can. All the positive affirmation that you get, can get from electronic friends. It's a very dangerous place to be. And maybe all of us have tasted that. I've tasted that before. I know what that's like. I know what he means when he says, I was almost gone. But it's the grace and the power of God that keeps us moving on. He says, for I was envious of the foolish. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, 
Spurgeon remarks well to this. He says, It is a pitiful thing that an heir of heaven should have to confess, I was envious. But worse still, that he should have to say it like this, I was envious of the foolish. And the foolish could be described as the ungodly or the wicked. Especially in this particular chapter, it talks about them as ones that enjoy health and wealth. They have no worries and they have no problems. They are proud and cruel. They have everything. They are arrogant towards God and his people. But isn't that much of what we see today? We're jealous of the world or try to become just like the world. We see that, and you know, I, I don't want to be a person that continually stands up here and complains about the church. That drives people crazy too. Because the church, the true church, is the body of Christ. We should never talk bad about the body of Christ, his bride. But what we've made of that in this country, in American evangelicalism, in the church today, is literally devastated this country. The Bible says that the judgment of God comes to the, comes to the house of God first. Why does he say that? Because we are ultimately responsible because the word of God is the only thing that's really going to have permanent change and transformation in a person's life. But if the gospel is not being preached in truth behind the pulpit, those in the pews are going to be fed lies, even though that many of them in the pews want these lies. It's a combined effort. And then our world suffers. Why? Because the truth isn't going out these doors into the world. Lies are being propagated in the church and they're being taken out to a world that just gets worse by these lies. Look all over the media today. All you see is these pastors apologizing to the LGBTQ for offending them. Give me a break. We got to quit apologizing and apologize to God for compromising his word. We should be broken over how the Lord feels about how we live our lives before him and whether or not we're holding to this opposed to what the world deems popular and productive. We've got, we've got to be able to step into a place of strength if we're ever going to see any changes in this world. I don't care what your eschatology is. I really don't. Because we all have a personal eschatology. And that could end today. End times in your own life. You, this could be your last day, your last breath, your last minute. It's the most important thing. It's very important that we walk out of these church doors today and we have the right gospel to preach to the world. I'm not saying you don't know the right gospel, but I'm saying that we're accountable behind this pulpit and as a church to take the truth to the world. It goes on in, in, in verse 4. It says, For there are no pain, pains in their death, but their strength is firm. Of course, I had to refer to Spurgeon again on this one because he says things so crafty. I love the way he uh, expounds the scriptures. He says this, This is mentioned as the chief wonder. For we usually expect that in the solemn article of death, a difference will appear and the wicked will become evidently in trouble. 
The notion is still prevalent that a quiet death means a happy hereafter. John Bunyan said that many times God will give the sinner a quiet de death to deceive those who are watching that aren't right with him. This reality is because someone had such a peaceful death. He died so peacefully, but he's an atheist. He's gone on to his eternal reward. He hasn't gone on to be with Christ. He's not in heaven just because he died a peaceful death. Peaceful death have nothing to do with someone's salvation. But we have gone to, well, how many funerals have you gone to? Where they say, oh, he's in heaven, he's in a better place. Really, he didn't believe the gospel. He didn't trust in Christ. I know it makes everybody feel good, and I understand being sensitive to people's pain. You don't want to be a jerk when you're talking about someone's loved one passing into eternity. You want to do it with much care for those who are still living. You want to be respectful. You want to be honoring. But that person, you have no right to validate that they're in heaven when they did not trust Christ. We've got to be honest with people, especially in the reality of someone's death. If they did not trust with, trust Christ, they're not with him. Now, I don't mean to say that to be um, mean behind the pulpit or, or stir up any past pain that you have with the loss of a loved one that may not have known God. I have lost loved ones, you know, uh, very close lost loved ones, family that have passed away with a question mark on their lives that I can't say with all certainty that's that, that that's where they are. And their, their going out was, was, was quiet. But that doesn't mean that they had a quiet entrance. In many of the statements that we read in, in, in ASAP's, ASAP's penning of this psalm are with much exaggeration. You know, he says, they are not in trouble as other men. This is not true. The world suffers. The world gets sick. The world gets in car accidents. The world dies of cancer. The world, a lot of it's in poverty. They struggle. These are exaggerations coming from a pain-stricken heart. How many times have you told your spouse, you always do that? When in reality, they don't always do it, but they do do it, right? Or you have a bad habit of saying to someone, you know, you never, ever take out the garbage. Really? Never? Now, these are exaggerations to, to be able to bring a point severely across what he's trying to say. This guy was in pain. And this exaggeration was just a man um, getting it out of his system. They never sick. They're always happy. They never have plagues upon them. They're never in pain. They never go without. Their lives are always perfect. But this is not true. But this is the pain that he's experiencing at the moment. You know, <clears throat> this reality of, of Asaph's life, we've got to remember that he served under the kingdom of David. And I want to put yourself in this mindset as well. First of all, we look at the devastation that came into Asaph's life. And quite rightly so. Who wouldn't be like that? Okay? But there's also another element of his ministry that we don't want to miss as well. And that is this idea that he is operating in a place that very few ever operated in as a worship leader. 
He was in a position and in a status that he was literally the worship leader over Israel and for King David. And many of us know the realities of spiritual warfare. We know what comes upon a person when they get into an elevated position. He wasn't God. He wasn't an angel. He was a human being. He was God's elect. But the reality is that he suffers like anybody else. And when you're exalted for 40 years in this particular ministry, in this kind of ministry, with the character and the nature of this ministry, it could just do devastating things to your life, period. Sometimes you get so elevated in a certain area, you forget about God. Because you're experiencing such an elevated means of life and spirituality and you see that you are gifted and you are talented and you have an ability to be this worship leader, you've been selected by none other than King David. I mean, imagine this opportunity that he had. Imagine the nature of the work that he did. Imagine what kind of effects that would have on him. Sometimes success at this level can destroy a person. Especially in the church. Especially in the areas of worship. Now I mean that in, in, in the preaching of God's word. And I mean this also as well as what we see our worship leaders up here today. Which really could be spiritual offspring of ASAP. If you look at the reality of what he did and where we are today. As long as it's done in biblical truth. But many of us know the realities of this kind of spiritual warfare. I know, for me, I was a street preacher for 13 years, and we experienced a whole lot of spiritual warfare. Seemed like there's always a kid clunking his head and getting sick every night before I went out and preached on the streets. The warfare and the arguments that we had, and when I returned, and the things that we'd gone through were just obvious signs that there was immaturity, but also spiritual warfare as well. But I've never ever experienced warfare like I have when I became a church planner. Nothing even came close to just the attacks and the spiritual warfare. Our marriages in this church get attacked. You know, and this isn't, you know, something to be dismayed about. <clears throat> I warn a lot of our People in, in, in here sitting here today, but also those who are functioning in any leadership capacity. I tell them right off the bat, here's some things you can expect. And if you're not ready, if the integrity of your life is not built upon the word of God. You've got no stability. You will get destroyed. If you're not called into this, you will get destroyed. This is why we are so quick to when we see things happen in the body that we're quickly to jump on that and bring the CPR that's needed so we don't lose anybody. And sometimes, you know, <clears throat> this does happen to many ministers. They lose sight of reality. They get a name. They get speaking engagements. They get, <clears throat> they get promotions. They get titles. They become a sensation. And their popularity goes to their head. They forget the reason they were originally called into ministry in the first place. Asaph lived under that power in the presence of Almighty God for 40 years. You can only imagine these two battles raging. I believe there was an identity crisis. I believe Asaph was lost in his ministry to such an extent it became him and he lost sight of God. He lost sight of God. 
If we do not believe God is good and that he has orchestrated our life for his glory and our good, then life itself will become intolerable. Our life will not be marked with endurance, but instead terror, dread, and fear. Knowing that God is perfect, good, holy, just, gracious, merciful, allows us to stay the course. Even when life doesn't make any sense. When suddenly our lives take a radical, unpredictable turn for the worse. Our hopes are dashed to pieces. What seems like a betrayal and a cunning trick to demolish our existence becomes the platform to our growth and success in the gospel. Asaph's misery wasn't just brought on by the tension between two worlds, but points to the ultimate problem. And that was a crisis in theology. Theos, our view of God. If you don't have the right view of God, everything in your life will be a pain. You'll be continually dismayed. You'll continually fall. You'll continually be pressed into doing things you shouldn't do because maybe you've created a God in the figment of your mind, in your imagination, that you've created a false God in your mind that allows you to do certain things that the scriptures don't allow you to do. You create a God in your own image, and this is what you live under. It's a scary place to be. But if we know that God is good, we know that He is perfect, <clears throat> and we have good theology, I'm not afraid to say that. I hear people say all the time, we don't need theology, we need Jesus. That is the most ridiculous statement I have ever heard in my entire life. We don't need doctrine, we need Christ. Well, don't you get it? He is the manifestation and the personification of doctrine, of the word of God. He had a theology. Jesus Christ had a theology. His doctrine was perfect. But if you don't have good theology, you could have a wrong Christ and not even know it. You could have a Mormon Christ. You could have a Jehovah's Witness Christ. You could have a Unitarianism Christ. False Christ. Jesus said many false Christ have arisen. Why? Because you've got terrible theology. Do you believe Christ was created? Do you believe he pre-existed with the Father at the beginning? Or do you believe that he came in in a certain portion of history and became born again at that point? He became a baby, then he died on the cross. Some people believe this stuff. That Christ was born again once he rose from the dead. Many people believe that Christ was created. Look at Arianism. It's all over the church. <clears throat> Many people believe he was just the Messiah and wasn't God. They deny the Trinity. They fall into the error of modalism. This oneness only, which is false. Scripture doesn't, doesn't define Christ that way. And if you don't have good theology, you don't have a promise of salvation. Now, I understand before I'm accused of saying that people can't come into the kingdom without perfect theology. We'll never have perfect theology. We'll never completely get everything. But we have a perfect Christ. And it's the Christ from Scripture. And he's the one that saves. Any Christ won't do. Only the Christ from Scripture. Having good theology is a main point to how you react to the world. How you re react to crises. <clears throat> 
how you, re how you react to when you don't get the job you've been wanting for years and you get turned down or you get fired or somebody else gets it and you don't. Maybe it's a promotion that you never got and you react to that by saying, well, God hates me. Really, that's the most unscriptural thing you could ever say if you're a true believer. It's one reason why people act so brutal behind the pulpit many times because they don't believe that God loves them. So they take it out on everybody else. They're abusive. Why? Because they think God's abusive. See, they have a terrible view of God. is isn't just life experience. Trauma does amazing things on how we react to people. But this, this, the greatest trauma is having bad theology. Because it's the wrong view of God. And you're going to operate in your world with this view. When people throw you under the bus, when, when you suffer abuse of any type or shape, you're not going to blame God for it because you're going to understand that God is sovereign, that God has orchestrated these things in our life. He's ordained everything that comes to pass. doesn't mean you've got to like it. It doesn't mean you're not going to be, you have to bear much pain. It doesn't mean you're going to have problems and doubt in your life. It doesn't mean at times you're not going to doubt God or doubt his word. But the reality is, at the end of the line, you're still serving God. And circumstances, regardless of what they are, don't deter you from or swaying from what God has dealt out in your life for his glory and for your good. John C. Johnston, in his classic work, I uh, wrote a book about history that was covered with men and women of God overcoming what seemed as unbearable disappointments with steel-like faith that points to a stable, loving, heavenly Father that declares to an unbelieving world that God is truly good to Israel. He wrote a, a phenomenal work on the Covenanters, the Scottish Covenanters, um, which uh, were under heavily persecution and martyrdom for their faith. They were ousted from the church because the king started wanting to get involved. Really, the government wanted to get involved and start telling the church what they could and couldn't do. They wanted to be in charge of worship. And they said, no, we'll have no king but Christ. They didn't like that. So they booted them out of the church to see if that worked. Well, they started having churches in the fields. Under the rain, all kinds of bad weather, and in the caves and on mountainsides and mountaintops, they began <clears throat> to have worship services. It didn't deter them. It didn't stop them. But it did make the world happy because the government began to chase them. And at this point, they began to become persecuted and martyred. Their families were killed. Blood was shed. Husbands were shot in front of their wives, in front of their kids. These things were happening right before their eyes, but they weren't deterred. It just strengthened them more to continue the fight. He says it was the stern and tremendous theology of John Calvin which gave birth to the Covenanters, and perhaps no other theology could have been of any service in an Iron Age like theirs. What they learned from it was an awesome sense of the sovereignty of God, a passion for righteousness and liberty, a sense of the vast issues of human destiny, and above all, a resoluteness and a certainty of faith which made them like a glittering sword of God amid the demoralization of their times. That should be said of us. The glittering sword of God is his church and the demoralization of our nation. We're to shine. We're not to endorse and condone. We're to confront sin, confront evil, not condone the very thing that God hates. He goes on to say, and they're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued 
like other men. He was looking at these, these, this terrible outcome of the world around him, the people that hated God, people that lived ungodly lives, who are wicked and noted for wickedness, were living a life that was different than the one that he was living. He was wanting this. He was seeing that don't the, don't the believers in the one and true God, aren't they to be blessed? Aren't they to walk in this blessing? Aren't they to walk in prosperity? Aren't they to walk without any pain or any plagues? But the world, this seems to be more appropriate and fitting for the world. Look at me. Look at the pain that I'm in. Look where I'm at. None of these things are happening to me. None of these things are going on in my, my life. My marriage is on the rocks. I'm as poor as you could possibly get. I'm sick all the time. I'm worried all the time. I experience rejection. I'm under the terrible plague of depression and anxiety. I have all these things on me every single day. He says, I am plagued every day. Every morning, he says, I'm plagued. But the world around me just has everything as if they're blessed by God. What am I cursed? What am I abandoned? What am I rejected by God? Or do you have the wrong theology? He had the wrong theology. Because I'll tell you what, I'll tell you this morning, the church has always been plagued. The church has always been attacked by the world. God allows these things. And you know what? God ordains these things for what? For the betterment of his people. No one was ever bettered in a rose park. In the fiery furnace, they're thrown. But as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not be pushed any other way. Throw us in the furnace. And if God doesn't show up, so be it, then we'll burn. But isn't there a fourth man in the fire? The king said. As a son of God. Jesus Christ was there in the midst of the fire. He didn't remove them from the fire. God's not going to... Now listen, I'm not saying God can't remove things. I can't say you can't be financially blessed. These things can happen to a believer. And it's okay to worship God under these, these different changes in your life. But remember, remember, the Christian life is never promised an easy one. As a matter of fact, God says in his word, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. These are more pictures of the world and not of the saints. The saints do struggle. The saints are afflicted. He says, you know, he questions the value of his own holiness when its wages are paid in the coin of affliction. He values his walk in purity. God, don't you owe me something? I'm so holy. I know your word inside and out. I obey you, God. I've done everything you called me to do. I spent 40 years under King David. I was a worship leader over all of Israel. And this is how I'm paid. This is how I'm paid for all of that. He begins questioning his own motives. We're to obey God whether we're thrown in the fire or not. We're to obey God whether we suffer any kind of calamity. I know it's difficult. It's a difficult pill to swallow, but it certainly is. And he banks it off there, this idea that the world, their pride serves as their necklace, which is true. Violence covers them like a garment. Clark says that chains of gold and golden rings were ensigns 
of majesty and civil power. As these chains encompass their necks or the rings, their wrists and fingers as the signs of the offices and virtue of, of which they acted. So violence, oppressive conduct encompassed them. I'm not going to get into it today, but we're seeing a lot of this in our own day. We're seeing a lot of this happening now. These men in power, where pride serves as their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. They scoff and they speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. In other words, they drink the last drink. They take it all. It's the idea that they're greedy and they're selfish. And the only thing you can think of is power, wealth, and sex. It's all they think about. It governs their entire existence. And they take it out on other people in order to satisfy their own lust. It's all around us in the bloodshed of innocent little babies. Children being massacred, abused. I just heard the other day of a young lady who was picked up by, or uh, a package was dropped off at her house. A seven-year-old child was excited to run out to the FedEx truck because her Christmas present had been delivered. And instead, this idiot, this monster, this vile beast abducts her and within an hour kills her. Seven-year-old little girl. Made my blood boil. I think it's been one of the cases just lately that's made me very disturbed. This is where we're at. You can't even trust the postman anymore. He'll rob your, he'll steal your kids. Not only steal them, but murder them. Does this mean we got to live in fear? No, but this just shows you the level of vile wickedness that's going on in this nation. And this is the point where they come in and they continue he says, her eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than their heart could wish. They scoff and they speak wickedly concerning oppression. They set their mouth against heavens, against the heaven. And then they go on to say, how does God know? Is there any knowledge in the most high? This pure absolute come to the conclusion of their rotten, filthy lives. And they turn and they said, there is no God. There is no God. This is just the way it is. This is the way we're going to continue to live. And then finally, after much tension and misery of just reading this chapter, the reader gets a relief because finally it looks as though Asaph is coming to his senses. He says, behold, these are the ungodly. Wait a minute. These are the ungodly who are always what? At ease. They increase in riches. And then this is where his repentance begins to change. He says, surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. In other words, he's saying, what good did it do for me? Am I this person? Am I this person? And he begins to realize that yes, he is. Which brings us to our second point is just the pain of the godly the pain of the godly and we're seeing through this chapter that the pain of the godly he feels like he is about to fall off a cliff 
which you read in the first two verses. His life of purity seems unrewarded. Ever been there? Read this in the 13th verse. He is constantly plagued with problems. We see this in 14 and 16. This is the life of a believer. And if you've come to the Lord for any other reason, you've come in vain. If you've got a wrong view of God that you think that your life should be nothing more than comfort and ease and wealth and prosperity, you come to the wrong Christ. Now, Christ certainly can bless you with those things. I never want to misinterpret that reality. But Christianity is a life of suffering. Jesus said, all those who will come after me must deny themselves, take up their cross. It means you must die. Paul said, I die daily. Death is not a pretty thing. It's not something we want to think about. And that's why in Ecclesiastes, he said, it's better to go to a funeral than to a party. Parties will get your mind out of this reality that your days are numbered. Your life is short. The Bible says it's like a vapor. You're here one moment, then you're gone. You realize that you're one breath away from eternity. Literally, if you stop breathing right now, you'd be in eternity. And there's no way back. So whatever you are at this point is what you will be for all eternity. If you've trusted in Christ, you'll be with Christ. If you're on the fence, you'll end up in hell. There's no purgatory. This is for all eternity under the displeasure of God, the wrath of God. At that point, there is no hope. There is no time limit. You're in eternity. It's forever. It'll never be undone. And the Bible talks very clearly about that reality. It's going to be a shocking reality to those who are not in Christ that think they are. Those who have turned to a false god or an idol and they try to manufacture a new Christ will end up in hell. It's not a foundation which the Bible calls will save you. But when you turn to the true Christ, you can expect to be with him forever. Where death is completely abolished. And this is our hope as believers this morning. And if you're not a believer, I would say to you as Acts, the book of Acts says that God has set apart a day when you'll judge the world in righteousness by his son. And he commands all men everywhere to repent. I would say you're not given an option. It's a command. God commands you to repent. It's your, it's your rebellion that'll put you in hell. But God commands you. He's not asking you. He's not saying, will you please come to me? It's not permission evangelism. That's nowhere in scripture. God doesn't need your permission. Permission. But he's commanding you to repent. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is the God of all. And when he says something, we better obey. And if we don't obey, then we'll suffer for that. Mm. For all day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, he said it was too painful for me. There's this clarification where Asaph realizes the death of the wicked. That's why it's okay to talk about hell in church, which has totally been removed from most pulpits. You don't hear about sin, and you don't hear about hell much anymore. And it's done great damage. 
And then he says his clarification came, this sobering reality came as he went into the sanctuary of God. And then he says, then I understood. Then I understood their end. I didn't understand it before, but I understand now. And if I would have thought this way at the beginning, these things would not have happened. But they happened. And now I know, and it shakes him right out of it. And this would be Asaph's turning point, where after much pondering, he enters into the sanctuary of God, which is really the place of revelation. When he comes to this reality, he understands, he sees this reality, but it's only in the house of God, in the house of the Lord, that, that these things are manifested. And this should be a strong conviction for us to come into the house of the Lord. I'm not saying God doesn't speak to anybody outside of this church. I'm saying God's church is universal, but it's also local. And there is always in scripture this idea of coming to the house of the Lord. It was his revelation. He sees this sobering reality <clears throat> and this frightening end of the wicked. But he's also, he's ripped out of the cradle of self-pity and contempt for God into an adoration and startling reality of what life truly means. To glorify God, to enjoy him forever, to fear God, and to obey him. The wicked are said to be on a slippery path to destruction. They're not firm. Even he said, well, it looks like they're firm. They're never moved. Well, let me just say this, that they're not on firm ground. Their ground is slippery. ASAP's ground wasn't slippery, even though it seemed like that. Your ground is not slippery, only it may seem like that. Even though you may adore Hollywood's cast, A-list actors, Find yourself constantly looking at their lives and, and being envious and wondering why your life couldn't be like that or better. You get angry because people are getting wealthy or they may be prettier than you are, better looking than you are, better shaped than you are. And you live there and your whole reality is built on this false notion that if you could just be like them, life would be so much better. It's a false standard. It's a vile standard. It's not the standard of Scripture. It's the standard of the world. And we must be very careful because you know what's going to happen to them if they don't repent? Do you realize the most famous actor out there, if he's not in Christ, he'll go straight to hell? You think God's going to stand there for the Academy Award and hand that to them? It's not going to happen. Get over them. Get over them. Enjoy the accomplishments that God does through people, even if they're lost. I mean, you got to hate everybody. That, that's, that's not a Christian. That's not the point. We can enjoy the rewards that we see that God does through his creation. And like, like those things, it's okay. But this reality that we're to adore these people when they, are, they spew nothing but hatred towards God um, is really unbelievable. And we're really in a very terrible spot, especially even in our churches who just, they eat off this diet every day of their life. <laughs> just pouring it in. And then they wonder why they've got so many problems. He says, surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they brought <clears throat> to desolation as in a moment. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. 
He's not saying God was asleep. He just happened to miss these people. It's this, it's this reality that arise God and confront your enemies, which is seen throughout all of Scripture. Jesus Christ, when he comes back for his people, he's not coming back to preach the gospel. He's coming back to slaughter those who never repented and trusted in Christ. The enemies of God will not be treated delicately and pampered with, with permission evangelism. They'll be slaughtered. So much so as that the blood will rise up so high up to the thigh of our Savior. Imagine this illustration. Let us be careful. Asap acknowledges two great truths. As we come to 20, he says these two truths as one, that God is guiding him. We see in 21 and 24. And the second point, that God is watching over him the whole time. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Have you gotten to that place in your own life where you've discovered this reality? God has brought this to light that without Christ, we're absolute beasts. We're radically depraved. We're enemies of God, haters of God. The Bible says that we were darkness, not we were in the darkness, that we were that darkness. There's no kind way of putting it that we were literally an abomination before God. But in all of this, nevertheless, nevertheless, despite ourselves, God was guiding Asap and God was watching over him. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward the beautiful hope is that you receive me to glory. Because many of us today think we've sinned so bad, right? That we're beyond forgiveness. A sin that we committed or habitually in sin or we're doing things in a way where we become so disillusioned because of our sin that we think we've out the grace of God. It's a terrible place to be. But it's not a terrible place if you can come to the point and say, never less. Never less. You will receive me, Lord God. You will guide me. And afterwards, you receive me to glory. Whom have I have in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and yes, my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is the reality of a believer. God is your strength and your portion forever. For indeed, he says, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all of your works. Asaph, as you've noticed, moved from a place of skepticism Move full circle in this psalm from a place of skepticism to evangelism. Mm. Amen. Now he says, I'm going to declare all your works. And this is the reality of a believer as well. Once we realize what beast we have, what beast we are, and we deserve the wrath of God, we deserve to be placed in the hottest place in hell, 
But nevertheless, God in his grace and in his mercy has, <clears throat> has pardoned us. Not anything that we have done. We're not good people. We don't deserve it. But nevertheless, God is gracious. And he sent his son to die upon the cross in our place. Which brings us to the third and last point. Our present and future health. In Hebrews 2.17 it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. The word propitiation carries the basic idea of appeasement or satisfaction specifically towards God. Propitiation is a two-part act that involves appeasing the wrath of an offended person and being reconciled to him. This is saying you have nothing to do with your salvation at all. The word propitiation is used in several verses to explain what Jesus accomplished through his death on the cross. For example, in Romans 3, 24 and 25, believers in Christ have been justified freely by what? His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, the satisfaction to God by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. This is the gospel of Christ. Psalms 46 one says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help. Yes, he's our future hope for the, for the glory of his people when he raises them to glory. But the reality, he's a present help now. He's with you now. He's your present help now to get you through these dark and unstable times in your life. Jude one twenty four says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And this is why we as believers can say, nevertheless, I am continually with you and you hold me by my right hand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, you say your word is forever, forever established in heaven, Lord. It's unchangeable. And for this, Lord, we are grateful. For you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is where we bank our entire eternal hope on. And this is what we trust, Lord, that we know that you're a good God. It is a goodness. You're only good all the time. Gets us through the darkest hours of our lives. That you're not an accident. That we didn't fall into some some place in our lives out of sight of God. But God had this in his plan from the beginning of time until we are returned to glory. Let us say this morning, one thing we can say out of our mouths this morning, as believers, that we can say, despite our sin, despite our rebellion, despite our failures, despite our shame, our continual transgressions, Nevertheless, I am continually with you and you hold me up by your right hand. And Lord, let this holy reality give us the grace to move beyond 
indulging in any kind of sin, but would spur us on and encourage us to live pleasing and holy in your sight. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.